Welcome to the Looper Podcast, the show where we make the rounds with interesting golf personalities. Here's your host, Eric Payton. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I really want to thank you for tuning in today. Our guest is PGA Tour Rules official Tom Hearn. I briefly met Tom when I was in college at the University of Nebraska studying to become a club pro. He'd occasionally stop by the program to share his incredible knowledge of the rules of golf. He's a really great guy, and I can't thank him enough for taking the time after a long travel schedule to sit down with me and talk about his job, some of the recent rules changes, and other interesting stories he's had over the years. You can go follow him on Twitter to see what he's up to. He's at Tom Hearn Golf. Now, without further delay, here's the interview. I'm Tom Hearn. I'm a, a tournament official for the PGA Tour. How did you get into officiating? Well, uh, I kind of backdoored my way in, in a, in a sense. I uh, I used to play professionally for about 10 years. In uh, uh, 1997, I figured out I was not quite good enough and hung that up and, and went looking for a real job and um, got hired as the tournament director and assistant executive director for the Nebraska Section PGA. And uh, did that for eight years um, and eventually got um, hired by the tour. I, uh, I was, uh, as a tournament director for the section, we would help out with the Monday qualifiers. And at that point, we had two, um, what was then the, the Nike tour events in our section. And um, you know, I knew some of the officials from my past playing days. And, and then when they saw me uh, working in that capacity, they they started approaching me saying, Hey, did you ever thought about doing this for a living uh, as far as working for the tour as a rules official? And I honestly had not at that point, I was kind of going to go on to going down the road of being a executive director of a section possibly down the road, but um, the rules kind of, kind of fell into place for me. And I, I they kind of made sense to me and my, my pea brain for some reason and uh, did well right away with them. And, and, that's the road I, I wound up going down. Yeah. So when you were playing, uh, were the rules something that you felt like you knew really, really well? Or did you really lean on those rules officials to, to help in different situations that might have come up? Yeah, I've thought about that. And I, in retrospect, I, I probably thought I knew them pretty good, but there, I, I had no clue, honestly. And I think that's probably the case with most players. I mean, that's not what they necessarily do for a living. And, and sure, they need to know the basics, but uh, as far as knowing what I know now, I I know now that I didn't know much back then. Yeah. So was there a lot of uh, studying and tests to kind of move into the rules official position? Sure. Yeah. When I when I started working for the section, uh, started going to the the USGA PGA uh, three day workshops, and um, yeah, they're pretty intense. If you've never been to one, um, they go through every nook and cranny of the rules and then some, and then they test you with a hundred question test at the, at, on the fourth day. And that's a, I think they give you three and a half hours. It's a, it, uh, it's almost a mind screw. I mean, it's, you're tired from three days of sitting in the classroom, listening to all the details. And then they throw this hundred question test at you. And it, uh, I've had many lawyers tell me that, that, the test is just as hard, if not harder, than the bar exam. So we'll kind of get into the new rules uh, a little bit later, but when these new rules are put into place, do you have kind of a 
another exam like that to to test yourself, or are you just expected to to know those? Well, uh, as a staff, we all had to dive in and and you know hit the books even more so than we normally would. We always have to to brush up on things and keep current, but uh, we really had to hit the books pretty hard at the end of eighteen, trying to transition and get ready for January one. And uh, then we had the all the staffs got together in Orlando, the USGA gave us a day and a half presentation, just kind of a cram session. And uh, then we, some of us have gone to a, a, a three-day workshop as well, which I did the first week of January. So how big is that, that PGA Tour rules official staff, the kind of the, the core group? Well, I do most of my work on the web.com tour. Um, there's 11 of us on that staff, and there's uh, I think there's 16 or 17 on the PGA Tour staff. But we kind of overlap. I mean, I work four or five PGA Tour events a year just because our web.com tour schedule isn't as, as long as the PGA Tour schedule. So we fill in there some. Um, and then the uh, PGA Tour champions has, I believe, nine or ten on their staff. Now, I would think that rule, being a rules official would be both a really fun job, but also really difficult. Uh, can you talk about what your favorite part is, and then also what's the, the most difficult uh, struggle that you have? Well, I, I, probably the answer is the same for both. It's the travel, I think. Um, and, you know, that can be good and bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very unique job in that we are gone for very long stretches of time. Um, i just got back last night from a three-week trip that actually ended a stretch of being on the road for seven of the last eight weeks. And that, you know, that happens with our job. But then there's times where I'll have bigger chunks of time off. So it's just a, it's just a different, different deal than a normal job, a nine to five Monday through Friday job. So the travel being, being away more than half of the time is, is definitely the hardest part. But if you flip that around, you know, I've gotten to see some really cool things and, and really cool places and, and meet a lot of neat people over the years um, because of the travel. So I don't go into the same office every day, uh, every week. I'm not sitting in the same cubicle. I'm not seeing the same uh, employees, even though our staff is the same. We're working with different people every week, and that's that's really a neat thing to meet people over the over the years. Yeah, yeah. So what is your relationship with, like, the players? Um, are do you ever have any any struggles with them, or do you kind of get close with them and see kind of the same guys every week and get to know them? And and is there kind of a, a nice working relationship between you and them? Yeah, it, it's it's really uh, quite a bit different on the Web dot com tour. Um, we get to go, the, we get to know those guys really well, and we're kind of a, a traveling circus. Then we band together, and, and for the most part, the relationships are really good. Um, when they get to the PGA Tour, things are a lot more of a high-level business, and you've got you know the players surrounded by the team. You know they've got the trainer and the sports psychologist, and you've got more of that at the PGA Tour level. So you lose some of the uh, the personal interactions when you get to the PGA Tour level. But uh, yeah, we we're with them every week, and you know we eat breakfast and lunch with them a lot of times, and at the golf course. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely a good relationship for the most part. There's always uh, there's always times where you have to deal with things with disciplinary things or pace to play issues, and uh, it's like any referee or umpire in any other sport. There's times where 
you know, things get a little sideways and that's just part of the job. Yeah. You're kind of the messenger sometimes. And, sure. and yeah. Um, so is there anything that really surprised you once you first got into being a rules official? Is there something that surprised you that you weren't aware of? Um, or, or maybe something that the casual golf fan doesn't realize about the rules officials? Well, in our sport, it's it's quite a bit different being a zebra, so to speak, as it is compared to maybe a, a football referee or basketball referee. We're, we're really involved in the entire event. We uh, One of us shows up uh, as the advance official. We're there a full week ahead of tournament week. So, in other words, Wichita, Kansas uh, is one of my advances. And I'll go in there, you know, 10 days before the first competitive shots hit. And I'm involved in A to Z there. Everything from where the portalettes are going to be placed to the locker room setup, uh, helping with registration, manage the field. I mean, everything you can think of, we are involved in. We don't just show up and uh, officiate the event and leave. So there's there that's one thing that surprised me when I got into this and there's no way that the casual golf fan would know this and even the players have no idea how extensive we're involved in, in things that are way more uh beyond than just the regular rules of golf. Yeah, so would you say that you work fairly closely with kind of the superintendent and his crew as well if you're on that advanced crew? Absolutely. Uh we do have the tour has agronomists that are assigned to each event and they uh between the superintendent and the agronomist and myself as the advance official we're making a lot of key decisions on green speed firmness um rough height when things are going to be mowed if we're going to be rolling greens morning or night or both just all kinds of decisions have to be made with the three of us getting together uh that the average public doesn't realize that we're involved in so what is your goal with that approach? Are you are you trying to balance between making the course really difficult and fair? Um, and how do you figure that out in each course? Yeah, it's, uh, a lot of times it's the, the hands you're dealt with, not only the, the golf course and the layout, but also the time of year. Um, I'm going to be leaving for an advance in Lafayette, Louisiana in, in two weeks. And it's a Bermuda golf course, and it's just going to be coming out of dormancy. And we won't have any rough at all. It's just the, the nature of the beast that time of the year. So um, there's times where you don't have any decision to make. It's just that's the hand you're dealt. Uh, but for the most part, we're trying to make it as difficult as we can without it turning into a three-ring circus, so to speak. Um, I mean, these are the, the best players in the world, and they need to be tested. And you can throw just about anything at them, and they'll figure out a way to shoot you know, 15, 20 under par no matter what. So I'm curious, what is uh, maybe one or two of the most of the strangest situations you've ever encountered? Well, uh, all kinds of funky things happen out there. It's an outdoor sport, so a lot of times there's there's weather involved with with funny things that have happened. We've had hurricanes we've had to deal with during events, uh, both at Q School and up in Nova Scotia. We actually had a hurricane blow through right during the tournament. Um, uh, other than weather-related issues, uh, probably one of the strangest things I've ever had to do early on in my career was assess Gary Player a two-stroke penalty for taking a ride in a golf cart. Uh, you know, when we did, we had transportation from certain holes between greens and tees, and from the ninth green to the tenth tee, we did not have 
authorized transportation and a volunteer happened to be riding by and kind of offered Gary a ride and he assumed it was you know one of those holes where we had transportation between holes and uh you know here we have Mr. Fitness himself and and then uh, we had to give him a two-shot penalty in a web.com tour event. Oh, wow. <laughs> so how often do you come up to a, a situation and think, huh, I, I'm not really sure what the answer to that is or what the, what the ruling will be? Um, probably a little more in 2019 <laughs> with all the changes. No, they're, they're, it's amazing. As well as we know the rules, there's certain things that, that, that might come up that – you know, we're just not quite sure how the USGA, who, you know, the USGA and the, and the Royal and Ancient uh, write the rules. There's times where we're not sure how they want us to interpret a certain situation. So, you know, we might give them a call and say, hey, here's what we've got. Um, not real clear the way it's written. How do you want us to handle this? So um, probably more often than you would think, but it's not more a matter of us not really knowing the rule it's just a matter of just a strange little twist of something that happens and yeah it might be a uh, a judgment and uh we probably just need to consult with them to see how they how they want us to rule on a certain situation so you'll actually give them a call in the middle of an event oh yeah 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 that happens so how often do you work with both those organizations usga and the rna um kind of in the off season or leading up to events um, or leading up to new rules being put into place, do they ever ask for your input or kind of um, help you to interpret what they're, what they're saying or how does that relationship work? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's back and forth there. Uh, they, they lean on us cause they know that we do it week in and week out. And we've seen a lot of things in the field that, uh, that they probably need to know about and, and, there's there's definitely some times where they'll lean on us and say, hey, here's what we're thinking about doing. Do you think this would work not only on paper, but actually on the, on the field? So, um, yeah, there, there's definitely some of that. Yeah. So one of the one of the rules that I feel like I've, I've read a lot about recently, there's been a lot of talk about is the pace of play. Um, you as a rules official, what is that line between letting players compete and um, helping the pace of play to move along, um, maybe to make it easier to view on TV to the fan. Um, you know, how do, how do you make a decision between um, telling a group to speed up or just letting them play and letting them compete? Well, first of all, this is this is an argument that has been going on for years and years and years, and will probably continue to go on well after you and I are are dead and buried. But uh, it, it's there's no uh easy fix to it um every situation is unique um generally what we're trying to do is is keep the field moving at a at a reasonable pace we're not asking them to fly around the golf course and and run around like their pants are on fire however we kind of want there to be a, a movement to the golf course that that is palatable to the middle 75 percent because there's always going to be that 10 or 15% on either end that, that play really fast or really slow. And, you know, the fast guys think we don't do enough about pace of play and the slow guys think we do too much and worry about it too much. So it's always going to be a situation where we're going to hear, um, you know, in both ears, but generally speaking, you know, we're trying to keep 
the groups up with each other. We have a time par set for the first group, and they are expected to play in that time par or less. Uh, it's kind of a, it's not really a suggestion; it's kind of a maximum. And that first group needs to play under time par. And secondly, the groups following need to stay in position, uh, which means they need to be on the same hole um, as the group ahead of them, basically. So, um, you know, we there we do way more with pace of play than the the general public and even the the pros will even know that we do. Um, probably 80, 90% of the conversation on the radio uh, throughout the day um, amongst us rules officials is talking about pace of play. You know, where's this group? Where's that? Have you talked to that group? Hey, I'm getting ready to time this group. But we, we time groups all the time, um, and the public just doesn't realize that we're doing that. And there are, there are pace of play uh, fines handed out all the time that the pay, that the public doesn't real about, realize that we're doing because it's not something that the tour, you know, just goes out and throws on a billboard. Hey, such and such just got fined such and such amount for for violating pace play policy. So um, there's a lot more that's being done about it than than is written and, and talked about in the media. Um, but that's okay. I mean. Um, we just have to do our thing and, and realize that the public's not going to realize uh, everything that goes on behind the scenes. You know, one of the biggest issues is is when we have a 156-man field. I mean, mathematically, you just can't get guys around any faster because uh, the first group runs into the last group and that tees off in the other nine. And then you've got these guys that are hitting it you know, 320, 340. So virtually every par five is reachable, which tends to create backups on the golf course. Um, and so there's there's a lot of times where a group might be behind and we just can't do anything with them because there's a two-group weight on a tee, you know, three holes ahead. So that, that kind of thing happens sometimes. It's factored in. Um, it, it, it's uh, something that where if, if somebody from the general public or one of the pros could sit in our golf cart for three or four hours and watch what we do with pace. Their eyes would be opened dramatically. So another uh, kind of controversial topic around officiating that I've heard a lot about recently is uh, the backstopping issue where, where one player will chip up and not mark um, once it's rolled past the hole so that another player can chip and, and, you know, if it happens to bump it, it'll keep their ball closer to the hole. Do you see that as as an issue, and, and do you see that happen a lot? And on the other hand, um, do you think it's something that happens out of um, maybe a player just doesn't even realize, or or you know how do you protect the field but also um, allow people to compete as well? Well, I, I definitely don't think it is near the issue that the that the media and the public think it is. Um, I, I mean, I honestly can tell you in my Gosh, I've been officiating at the section level and the tour level for over 20 years now. Uh, I personally can only remember maybe two or three times where I've witnessed in person that actually, you know, a golf ball colliding with another one where, yeah, maybe it should have been marked. It just doesn't happen. These guys are so good that a ball that's sitting two, three feet from the hole is generally not going to be in their way. 
and it's not going to be something that they're going to make contact with. So it doesn't happen very often. There's times where it looks worse than it is. Um, there are times, I, I mean, I have seen examples on TV of, of replays of where, you know, yeah, that probably should have been marked. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a very difficult rule to enforce because there has to be a, a, an agreement between the players. Hey, would you like me to leave that there for you? Yeah, that'd be great. And that just doesn't happen. It's more a matter of the player just stands back and lets it happen and that it, that that's impossible to enforce because you don't have any um, interaction between the players verbally. What happened with the LPGA tour the other day? I don't know. I, that, I think that was worse, made, made worse by what happened after uh, the collision. You know, they kind of kind of celebrated it and fist bumped. And, um, but I really, after hearing the interview um, with the lady, I just don't think there was intent there. Uh, that that was her reason for having her leave the ball there. Um, most of the time, it's more like, eh, I'm just going to go ahead and hit um, for pace of play purposes. So, I, like the girl said, I think in a, if she had the chance to do it over again, she would have had that ball marked just for perception reasons. But uh, I, I really don't believe there was any intent there, and that's that's where it gets difficult to actually enforce that rule. Yeah, that makes sense. So on to the new rules changes this year. There's been a lot of uh, new things put into place, a um, couple of them that are that I think appear a little more dramatic than they are. Um, but what's your what's been your reaction to the new rules? Uh, and do you agree, disagree with the changes? And um, how have those, those gone over? Uh, I think for the most part, the USGA has done a great job with this. Uh, it's going to take time for all of us to get used to uh, new terminology, uh, new procedures, and new visuals. Honestly, that's kind of the, that's the strangest thing is seeing professionals putt with a flag stick in. It, it just, I think we all agree, it just looks funky. But five years from now, we won't even bat an eye about it. It'll be very normal. Um, you know, dropping your ball from knee height, um, a lot more has been made of that than, than deserves. Um, they, it's funny, the players, I think they've seen a lot of um, video and photos that have been put out in the promotional materials of all the rules changes, and they they show them kind of facing the hole and kind of squatting down to the side and, and dropping a knee height, and it just looks really awkward. Where if, if the player would just do it really casually, like they're just, going to pick something up off the coffee table, you know, maybe let one foot come off the ground and um, just drop it out in front of them just very casually. It, it There's a way to make it look a lot more normal than, than a lot of players are, are struggling, kind of squatting down and dropping it off to the side of their body. It looks funny, but they'll get used to it and they'll realize that there's an easier way to do it. Now, do you know um, kind of the reasoning behind that change? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the knee height drop is done for the purpose of they're trying to, to they're trying to pretty much streamline everything and, and make it uh, very simple. And before, if you say we're dropping off a car path, you'd get one club length relief, and then your ball could could land at the end of that club length and then roll up to two more club lengths. So you'd wind up, you know, potentially up to three club lengths away from your nearest point of relief. They're trying to keep 
the relief area to be the relief area. The ball needs to land in there and stay in there. And by dropping the ball from knee height, it bounces and rolls dramatically less than it does from shoulder height. I mean, we've all been surprised uh, as rules officials how much of a difference that makes dropping it from knee height. Um, the ball's just not traveling very fast by the time it gets down the ground, and it doesn't take a hard bounce and, and roll like it did from, from shoulder height a lot of times. So it's there's definitely a good reason for it, and, and uh, it's just a matter of people getting used to, to the new procedure. Yeah, yeah. I know just the other day, Ricky Fowler, you know, accidentally dropped from shoulder yep. height and got penalized for that, which yep. was, was kind of interesting to see happen. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those where it's unfortunate because obviously he didn't gain any advantage from doing that. But there's so many rules that, that can't be based on whether the player gained an advantage. It's a matter of could he have gained an advantage. And the bottom line is there's a procedure that he needs to follow, and he didn't, and that's, that's what resulted in the penalty. And it's, it's unfortunate um, that it happened, but uh, you can't really differentiate between him dropping shoulder height and, uh, say, him uh, maybe spinning the ball instead of just letting it drop. I mean, it's just a, you, there's a there's a correct way to drop the golf ball, and he didn't, and it resulted in a penalty stroke. So another thing that I've heard with these new rules, uh, a couple players have come out and said, um, I think specifically Adam Scott said something about leaving the flag stick in, allowing that has changed the short game. And I don't know if that's just maybe a loud minority that I've heard, um, but are, is that something that you're hearing from players that there, there's a different approach because of leaving the flag stick in? Well, I think the jury's still out on it. I I don't know that there's going to be that many times where the players of this caliber are going to have their golf ball strike a flag stick traveling fast enough to where the ball is going to hit the flag stick and drop in as opposed to if the flag stick wasn't there, it would have, you know, maybe popped out of the hole. I mean, they just, it just doesn't happen hardly ever. Um, probably more of a potential gain for these guys is actually having something to aim at. Um, not necessarily having the ball hit the ball, hit the flag stick and, and drop in, but maybe giving them something to aim at that they haven't had to in the past. Uh, maybe that's an advantage. I've honestly, I've only played one round of golf with the new rules. And so I, I can't really say, um, but I think some of the guys are actually thinking that that's possibly helping them out to where they're actually aiming at the flag stick instead of the hole, kind of narrowing their focus down. But, uh, I don't know. I think time will tell. We've got so much data available. It'll be interesting to see if the putting stats go down um, or, you know, get better, so to speak, uh, between that and being able to repair damage on the greens. I think that might have more of an effect. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, there's a lot of attention around the um, or debate around some of those ones we just talked about, but repairing damage on the green and I like the... Um, three minutes to look for a ball instead of five. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a fan of those and, and those changes, but those kind of get overlooked, <laughs> I guess, yeah. to other things. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, the, the repairing the damage on the green, I think, has gone well. I don't think uh, you see any signs at all of, of players coming close to abusing it like people thought they would. Um, the guys are not spending a whole lot of time. Just every once in a while, you'll see them tap something down, and that's fine. That's the new rule. Um, yeah, the three minutes 
that's a that's a big change. That, that three minutes goes by fast when you're in a ball search now. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so if you could change one or maybe two rules of golf, if you had the power to do that, uh, what would it be? Oh boy. Um, I tell you, if you'd asked me this maybe five years ago, I would have given you things that they've changed now. Um, you know, having a golf ball accidentally strike a player, you know, years ago, if you hit a tree and ball comes back and hits you, it used to be two shots. Then they backed it down to one and now there's no penalty, uh, which is great. I mean, you know, you hit the lip of a bunker and it comes back and hits you or, or your equipment. Gosh, there's nothing you can do to avoid that. So it's, I think it's the right thing now to have no penalty there. Um, having no penalty on accidental movement on, of a ball on the green is huge. That's something that uh, has been long overdue. There's so many times where with the screen speeds at 12 and a half, 13, that you know, the player sets his putter down behind the ball and for whatever reason, gravity or a little tiny bit of wind and the ball will move. And um, now if a player has, has marked his ball and put it back down, he owns that spot. It doesn't doesn't matter what cost it to move. Uh, there's not going to be any penalty and he's going to put the ball back. And and no matter what, if even if he hadn't marked his ball and put it back, if the player caused the ball to move and it was accidental, there's still no penalty. So... That's the way it should be. I mean, you've, to me, you've reached the holy grail when you've reached the putting green, and the rules should be different there and more lenient. So kind of along that, you know, you, the, the ball is there and it should stay there. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I think it was two or three weeks ago, Ricky Fowler had that situation where he dropped um, dropped a ball because it went in the water, and then he walked up on the green, and then the ball rolled back in the water. So he kind of got penalized twice for that. Um can you help people? I'm not sure everyone really understood what was happening in that situation. Do you have any thoughts on what happened there? And, and Well, first of all, that, that got blamed on the rules changes, and that's that's nothing that's changed. I mean, that, that would have been the exact same situation last year as it was this year. So, um, you know, when you're, when you're taking relief, and, and in, that, in that case, he's dropping from penalty area, and he dropped twice and it rolled back into the penalty area twice. And so at that point, you're placing it where the second drop landed. And if that ball is at rest, it's back in play. And what happens after that happens. And, and if, you know, if the wind or gravity causes the ball to move, it goes where it goes. Now, it conversely could have rolled onto the green and rolled into the hole. But it obviously it didn't. And it it looked ugly because he's taking another penalty stroke to, to deal with that. That's a tough one, but you're seeing the bad side of that. Like I say, conversely, it could it could roll to your favor, um, into a more favorable position. But I, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's something that that if there's a way that if the ball does move that causes you a penalty, either it be rolling into a uh, penalty area or back into the same unplayable lie you had or maybe even rolls out of bounds, maybe there's exceptions that could apply there. But I, I don't know. That's a that's a tough one. But that, that had nothing to do with the, the, with the 2019 changes. So here's a question that, um, that I've always kind of wondered about. Um, there's the rule where there's the caddy who can't stand right behind a player, correct? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you know, kind of as an alignment aid. Right. Um, but at the same time, on the green, if a caddy's, say, tending the pin... Um, I think I saw the other day that uh, even an announcer mentioned that um, 
the caddy's foot was being used as an, as a as an aiming mark, you know. So he's almost using the the caddy on the other side as the aiming point. Have you ever seen that, or do you have any thoughts on on those on on those two together? You know, the caddy being in front versus versus behind. Well, the, what they're trying to do there is is try to make the the the, the player have sole responsibility for lining himself up, and the, the the main gist of the changes that they've had are trying to keep the caddy from being behind the player like you predominantly saw on the LPGA tour where they would stand there and get their feet lined up, the shoulders lined up and, and then step off the side before they hit the shot. They're trying to get the player to have the responsibility of, of the skill of alignment. So that's the reason there. And I, they've had to, come out with a clarification and adjustment on that based on a couple of players had close calls it's a phoenix and so they're not trying to trap a player they're not trying to get a a player penalized for for a situation where there isn't you know aid going on back there but so they've kind of softened that rule a little bit from what it originally came out which was probably a good change because the way it was originally written up a player and a caddy could get trapped if if the caddy didn't get out of there in time, even though there was no intent. So that's the that's the main gist of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, one of the questions I like to wrap up with uh, for everyone is, what is your favorite golf course? Um, and and for you, maybe what is your f- favorite tournament to work as well? So kind of both of those. Uh, probably the, the best golf course that I've ever played is Cypress Point, and that's probably. Uh, it's up there on many lists, but, uh, Cypress Point and then just here locally, Sandhills in our state of Nebraska, uh, uh, pretty hard to beat either one of those, but, uh, I haven't, you know, I haven't gotten to play, haven't gotten to play Augusta. I haven't played Pine Valley. Uh, I have played Pebble, but, uh, yeah, I'd go with Cypress Point, probably be number one on my list. And then as far as the favorite tournament, um, shoot, that's about like asking, which which kid's your favorite? But uh, I gotta be I've got to be partial to here in Omaha. I, they do such a good job putting on this Web.com tour event, and it's really cool to see uh, the community get behind it and come out and support it. Um, what they run in Omaha with the Pinnacle Bank Championship is not a is not a normal Web.com tour event. Um, you get a lot more attendance than normal, and there's a lot more hype and excitement going on around that event than, than is normal for our tour. So. I got to be partial to that. Yeah. So do you do you kind of do the same tournaments every year? And and I assume that Omaha one is one of them. Uh, yeah. Uh, we don't necessarily do the same ones, but I mean Omaha, being as I live an hour from there, um, that's something that'll probably always be on my schedule. But uh, we 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 mix and match around. I you know I worked Puerto Rico last week, and I hadn't worked that in probably the last three years. Um, sometimes you'll you'll just you'll get in a rut where you'll have a tournament scheduled right before one of your advances. So in other words, the, whatever there's the week before Wichita, I, you know, I won't work if, if that stays that way, if a tournament's the same every year on the schedule, right before Wichita, I'm going to be in Wichita advancing that tournament. So, um, but it varies. Uh, there's, 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 uh, 27 tournaments on our web.com tour schedule. And I'll probably, generally see 18 or 19 of them um you know between my advances and 
and off weeks that I have. Well, awesome. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been awesome to hear from you, um, hear your perspective, and I really appreciate the time. Anytime. Good luck for the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and rate The Looper wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Looper Podcast. Talk to you next time.